as we are on our third uh, of a series of who knows how many in the book of Romans. Uh, we're getting deep into to chapter 1 uh, this week. We're going to follow up last week. We looked at uh, verse 16 last week. This week we're going we're gonna to see how verse 17 expands on what verse 16 has already, uh, has already told us. Uh, how do you respond? Think about this for a second with me. If somebody approaches you and says, I think you should X, whatever. I think you should invest your money over here. I think you should, um, you know, think about making a career change. I think you should go to that school instead of this school. I think you should take that class instead of this class. What's your reaction? How, how, do, you, how do you feel when somebody offers you advice? A part of your action might be to say, well, I have a question, Tom. Is it somebody I know really well? Is it a friend of mine? Is it a family member? Or is it a total stranger? It might depend on the relationship you have with that person. Uh, I, I've told the story before. I think you, those of you that have been here for a while are probably familiar with it. Uh, but 15 minutes after my dad met Cindy, when, my wife, when she was 16 years old, he pulled me aside and said, you should marry her. Okay? That, now, what do you do with that kind of advice? You know, 16 years old... You know, you should marry her. I've known her for all of 15 minutes, but I'm pretty sure she's the one for you. Now, as it turns out, you know, 35 years later and 28 years of marriage later, you know, by golly, he was right. How, how about that? Uh, but before my dad became a believer, another piece of advice he gave me when I was early on in my, my ministry life, I was working with high school and middle school students as a, as a youth minister. My dad said, I'm not real sure about your career. Maybe you ought to think about kind of getting a real job, so to speak. Now, some of you might be wishing this morning that I had listened to him on that particular piece of advice. Uh, I happen to think that, that he probably missed that one. Uh, and at the time, not knowing the Lord Jesus, I, I understand where he was coming from. And later on, he became a believer and then wholeheartedly endorsed uh, my ministry. But at the time, uh, that wasn't the best piece of advice. So how do you know when to listen and when to maybe kind of shrug it off and say, ah, not for me? Well, in this introduction to the book of Romans, Paul's given us of a piece of advice. He's saying to us, you should, and then he fills in the blank with a very specific instruction. Paul is saying in these, in these first 17 verses of Romans, everyone should put their faith in God through a saving relationship uh, that comes through, uh, through his son, Christ Jesus. Every person should do this. You should put your faith in God through a saving relationship with his only son, Jesus Christ. Now, can we trust that? Should we take that advice? Should we heed it or should it maybe cause us to ask some more questions? After all, how well does Paul know me? How well does Paul understand my circumstances? How do I know whether Paul really is a good theologian or not and understands the real way to have a relationship with God? After all, lots of other people are suggesting lots of other different ways to enter into a relationship with God. So should we take Paul's advice? Should we not? My guess is there's probably a good number of folks here who, who have taken that advice who agree with that wholeheartedly and say, yes, I have, I have come into a relationship with God, a, a faith relationship through Jesus Christ. There are probably others here that say, you know what, I'm, I'm still kind of working through that idea. I'm not sure exactly what I believe about that. Uh, I might be a little critical or I might be a little hesitant. I'm not positive. And if, and if you find yourself in that place this morning, we're glad you're here. Uh, we hope you'll hang around with us. We hope you'll explore that a, a little bit more. And we hope maybe we can be part of that process. And then there are probably folks kind of somewhere in between those two. Well, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, God reveals himself to us through Christ Jesus. So the question is, what can we learn about God? What can we learn about his plan of salvation through Christ? And how do we apply it? In other words, should we take Paul's advice? 
With that in mind, Romans 1, verses 16 through 17. Hear the word of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, confronted this morning with uh, a, uh, not just a piece of advice, but really an admonition. Paul, Paul states very strongly his zeal for the gospel and his zeal for passing it on to us. Not just those who read his letter some 2,000 years ago, but those of us gathered in this room today. And inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, he helps us understand what the gospel means and how it applies to our lives. So, Father, I, I know I can't do this justice. We don't need to hear my word this morning, Lord, anyway. What we need is to know your word and have it applied to our lives. So does that for which we pray. Lord, we have worshipped you with our mouths in worship. We have worshipped you in, in prayer. We have celebrated uh, folks coming in as members of this spiritual family. And now, Father, uh, we need to worship you with our minds, with our intellect, with our understanding. And we pray for your spirit to lead that. Father, forgive me my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to understand this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come, that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. I'm going to do a very quick recap of verse 16. Uh, this is last Sunday's sermon shrunk down from about 30 minutes to about, about three or four minutes. And you say, well, why didn't you do that the first time? Uh, but Because um, uh, I like sharing with you all. Uh, but, but I want to at least get us on some, some footing there because I know there are probably a bunch of you were out of town last week. And I would encourage you, not because I preached it, but I would encourage you to, to either go online and download and listen to that sermon or grab a copy of it this morning because you really need to see verses 16 and 17 in all their fullness. As we said last week, one commentator wrote you know, that the entire foundation of Romans is found in, in uh, these two verses in 16 and 17, so they're of great importance. Uh, verse 16 said this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Uh, what Paul is saying there is that the gospel, and gospel technically means good news. Uh, we, chat, we chatted about that last week. You know, I said, hey, the, uh, the baby was born and everybody's fine. Well, that's good news. That's what the word technically means. This good news from God is found in Christ Jesus. That in Paul's mind and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus and the gospel were synonymous. So if you want to know where to find God's news, it's good news. It's not a question of what, but of who. And in Jesus, the good news comes, and it's for what? Our salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. And so verse 16 uh, introduces to us very clearly in the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation. And so verse 16 uh, introduces to us very clearly and very concisely uh, that this is how God is going to communicate with this world. So how do we respond to that? Well, Paul goes on to say, this is for everyone who believes. So what is my responsibility? What, what, how should I react to this? Well, Paul says, the appropriate response is belief. The appropriate response is to put your trust 
in him alone, in Christ alone for salvation. Now, where did Paul get this from? Did he just pull this out of thin air? Is he just kind of making this up as he goes along? Uh, For just a moment, I'm going to take us back to the gospel of John. Jesus is talking to a group of religious folks who have gathered around him, and they ask him a very theologically astute question. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? That is not a bad question. That, that's actually a pretty good question. How do we, Jesus, how do we get in a relationship with God? How, how do we make sure we're doing the right stuff? Because after all, we're pretty convinced that God's got a pencil or a pen and a notepad and he's taking notes. So as long as I do the right things, I'll do his works and, and he'll smile when he thinks about me. And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, not plural works, but singular. This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. And then down further in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. Paul isn't kind of pulling this out of thin air or, or kind of, you know, I heard somewhere that maybe this is what God does. He, he's taking it right from Jesus' own words, that God's offer to the world, God's good news to the world is through Christ Jesus and his gospel. And our response should be, to believe in him. Well, verse 17 simply takes this truth and it, and it expands it. It gives us more insight and more information in the gospel and, and, and how it applies to our lives. And it reinforces the notion that the only right response is the response of faith, is the response of belief. So we're going we're gonna to look at how verse 17 uh, kind of uh, helps uh, grow our understanding of the gospel. So let's come to verse 17 where we've underlined the first point. For it is the righteous in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That is as written, the righteous shall live by faith. In verse 16, Paul says the gospel is the power of God. It is the, it is the dynamite of God. It is the explosive presence of God. In verse 17, he says it is the righteousness of God. When he says in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, it is the gospel. So the question is there before us, how does the gospel contain the righteousness of God? When most people think of righteousness, they think of doing the right thing. So you think of God's holiness or God's perfection or God's glory, and and that certainly would be true, but there's a nuance to the word here in light of the gospel that we cannot miss. How does the gospel contain the righteousness of God? Well, in in Romans chapters 1 through 3, starting next week with the second half of chapter 1, all the way through chapter 3 of Romans, Paul is going to make the point that you and I have a legal problem with God, that that we are lawbreakers, that God has established his law, and through through his perfection, he has set the course for mankind to have a relationship with him, but we have turned and gone our own ways. We have, in a sense, violated his ordinances. Now, Paul's going to go on and argue that the law is actually a good thing, that, that God is actually good for giving us the law. I run across folks from time to time who say something along the lines of, you know what, God really is a big spoil sport, isn't he? I mean, you know, the, the law and all those rules and everything he gives it, he's really just trying to rain on our picnic. I mean, he really, you know, if, if he just kind of let me be myself and he wouldn't give me all those rules, why is God such an oppressive God? Why is he, why is he so consumed with rules? Really? Do you really want to try to defend that argument? I mean, let's look at just the Ten Commandments. And in fact, let's not even look at all the Ten Commandments. Let's, let's look at, at three of the ten and try to defend the point that God is, is oppressive 
and angry and out to stomp on us and, and just ruin our good time. Don't murder. Boy, what a terrible God. What God would, don't kill each other unjustly. That would be a terrible thing to do. Can you believe God told us to do that? I, you know, why can't I just get my gun and go out and shoot anybody I want to? Why can't I have that freedom? Why would God be so mean to me like that? Thou shalt not steal. Oh, what a terrible God to suggest that we should actually honor one another's property rights. What an awful ogre of a being to suggest that we should be honest in our dealings with one another. I, I, this is a terrible God. I don't have anything to do with him. Honor your parents. Oh, there's a rotten one. Now, my mom's sitting right here. I'd like to just give her a piece of my mind right now and tell her what I think. Why is God not letting me do that? You know I'm just making that up as I'm going along. Um, she makes really good cookies, and I don't want to get out of that side of that, that scope. Isn't it terrible that God would tell you to honor your parents? Now, we've all been maybe in that 13, 14, 15-year-old age range where we didn't. But my tongue is firmly embedded in my cheek, friends. The, God's grace is exhibited through his law. He says, I think enough about you to care about how you treat not only me but one another. And the law is good. Now, we agree with this in principle, right? I mean, I mean we, we understand this, and we know that deep down in our hearts this is true. And, and I, can, I think I can prove it for you. When I was young, probably eight or nine years old, I had my G.I. Joe collection, you know? And I had the, you know, the G.I. Joe that was the Army G.I. Joe with the rifle, and I had the, the G.I. Joe that was the flamethrower G.I. Joe, and I had the G.I. Joe that was like the, the, the underwater Navy G.I. Joe that had the air pack. You know, I had all the G.I. Joes, right? And my sister had a collection of Barbies, right? And we had a swimming pool in our backyard. And so she would go out there and take all the Barbies and put them by the pool and put them in their little lounge, you know, chairs and put her suntan lotion on and put suntan lotion on them. And when she wasn't looking, I'd have G.I. Joe underwater snorkel G.I. Joe swim up and grab the Barbie, right? And take Barbie to the deep end of the pool and hold Barbie's head underwater, right? And then my sister wanting to, you know, you know, she thought the law was good too, thou shalt not steal. So trying to get her property back, she would jump into the pool to try to save Barbie and I would hold my sister's head underwater for a little while because that was an awful lot of fun as well, okay? Now, I, you're sitting here going, wait a minute. <laughs> did anybody correct that? <laughs> did anybody, you know, did you get in trouble for that? Yes, I did. And rightly so. I was a lawbreaker. So when you look at it in that context, you say, if, if there's a crime, there ought to be a punishment right? But what about when you're the guilty party? What about when you've spoken a harsh word to someone? What about when you haven't been completely honest in your dealings? What about when I am the culprit? It's a little different story then, isn't it? Why? Because then we don't want to focus on justice. What do we want to focus on? We need to see mercy. Isn't that the cry of our hearts? Listen to David. I'm not going to put the verses on the screen. In Psalm 51, he speaks for all of us. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, David is saying, God, you are, you are perfectly right to find me guilty. He's not defending himself. You are perfectly right to find me guilty. He's not defending himself. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David understands he's guilty. He slept with another man's wife and then he had that man killed so he try, as he tried to cover it up. David didn't try to defend his actions, but what does he do? He throws himself on the mercy of the court, so to speak. When we're guilty, we want mercy. 
There's something glorious about forgiveness. There's something that resonates in each one of our hearts when you think about forgiving another person for their sin. But the question is, can the two be wed? Is it possible for justice and mercy to hold equal weight, to be equally honored and to be equally uh, considered as we go through life? Well, I think with, with mankind, it's very, very difficult to bring mercy and uh, to bring mercy and justice together because if one succeeds, it seems by definition that the other fails. Uh, let's suppose that we're on the people's court. Remember that old show, the people's court? It's kind of precursor to all the, all the kind of reality TV these days. You go on the people's court and we'd have, a, we'd have a claim against one another. So let's suppose I come on people's court and say, hey, uh, you uh, ran over my fence in my yard and you knocked it down. And, and judge, not only did, did he knock it down, but he didn't even bother to stop to tell me he knocked it down. He, he just sped off into the night. And if I didn't hear the wheel screeching, I wouldn't even have known it was him. So I want him to, to pay for the fence. And by the way, I'm suffering terrible emotional damage for my fence being knocked down. So I need some money for that too. Now, you laugh about that unless you also have agoraphobia, which is a fear of open spaces. And you have a fence that's knocked down. All of a sudden, open spaces, I'm a little scared. Now, we say, wait a minute, that, that guy ought to pay. How, what kind of neighbor is that that knocks over a fence, Right? He needs justice. Well, then you stand up and you say, well, there's a little more of the story, Your Honor. You see, my wife was, was about five centimeters dilated, and, and I had to get to the hospital because she's about to give birth to our first child, and, and I didn't mean to run over the fence, but it just happened. Well, that's another story. Now, where are we going? We're leaning a little more towards the mercy side, aren't we? Right? Okay? It depends if you're the fence owner or if you're driving the car. It's impossible to bring those two together. If the judge says, you know what? He didn't mean to do it. He was driving his wife to the hospital. So, you know, give him a hundred bucks. He can fix, have the fix, fence fixed. You go, wait a minute. That's not, that's not, that doesn't feel quite right. If on the other hand, he says, look, he was driving his wife to the hospital. Uh, that doesn't matter. You got to pay for everything and you got to pay emotional damage on top of it. That doesn't feel right either. Why? Because you sense the tension of the imbalance. If one wins out, the other one by definition has to lose. Man cannot align justice and mercy. One must suffer for the other to prosper. But Paul says within the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What is the righteousness of God? In this framework, it is the perfect balance of justice and mercy. Friend, God isn't going to turn a blind eye to your sin. He's either going to pay for it or you're going to pay for it. He means when he says that he hates sin and that we are guilty. But the person of Jesus Christ coming and living a perfect life and dying on the cross and being resurrected is the payment for our sin. It is the merciful act of God. And God alone has the power to bring justice and mercy together in a perfect union. That is his righteousness. And that is what he gives us through the person of Jesus Christ. God pays the price that he does not owe. He is not guilty for my sin. He is not guilty for your sin. I am and you are. He pays that price through Jesus Christ. And then he extends mercy and grace. And the two are perfectly balanced. We need to understand that the gospel includes the righteousness of God. Secondly, we also need to see that in verse 17, the character of God is expanded. Paul writes, the righteousness of God is revealed is revealed. That means it's made known. God isn't hiding it. It's not subtle. It's not off to the side. You don't have to follow a whole bunch of clues. We're not on a a heavenly scavenger hunt to try and figure out the mind of God. But he is openly demonstrating his grace. 
He is clarifying for all the world to know what it means to come to him for salvation. You remember that old TV show, To Tell the Truth? A lot of you aren't old enough to remember it, where they had three people who all claimed to be the same guy. The panel asked or the same gal, and they asked him a bunch of questions, and at the end the panel says, well, I think that's the real person, or I think that's the real person. And then they say, well, the real, you know, Joe Smith stands up, and they kind of mess around, and then the real guy stands up. And it's clarified. We find out who the real guy is. In verse 17, we find out who the real God is. God says, I want to be abundantly clear. What does the gospel reveal about God's character? Well, first of all, it reveals his perfection is our salvation. His perfection is our salvation. In Psalms 130, again, I'm not going to put it on the screen. Just listen. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, in other words, God, if you keep a scorecard of all things I've done wrong, O Lord, who could stand? question is obvious. No one. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God openly and lavishly loves sinners. He is compassionate, and, and the character of God is further explained in the fact that he would reveal him feared. God openly and lavishly loves sinners. He is compassionate, and, and the character of God is further explained in the fact that he would reveal himself to us with such kindness and such love. But it also tells us something else. It tells us that as he reveals this perfect balance of justice and mercy, we understand that as he brings them together through the cross, he shows his complete and consistent to his word. In other words, God proves himself to be trustworthy. When, when God said somebody has to pay the price for sins, somebody's got to pay for Tom's sins. It's either going to be Tom or someone else who's perfect, and nobody else is perfect. And Jesus said, I'll go pay for Tom's sins. I'll go hang on the cross. I'll suffer, and I will exchange my righteousness for his unrighteousness so that you could be, we can be perfectly consistent in our hatred of sin and our love for sinners, and people will know that they can trust and they can believe. When God's justice is met fully with God's mercy, this is not a fraud. It's not offered reluctantly. We can trust him, and we can trust him completely. He keeps his word every time. I do a lot of premarital counseling. In premarital counseling, I always ask couples this question. Is there anything at all that can make you waver in your love for your partner? Is there anything you can think of that would make you waver in your love for your partner? Now, if you're married, you remember when you were engaged. And you remember how much better, you know, your spouse was when you were engaged than after, you know, 10 or 15 years. That's not true. It gets my, my marriage is just, I'm having a lot of fun having our kids out of the house. I just am enjoying getting to know my wife all over again. It's a blast. But you ask a, a, an engaged couple, and they're not really thinking about the details. They're not thinking about the journey. They're just thinking about, you know, they just got this deer in the headlights, just totally, absolutely in love with one another. And they, I've never had a couple say, yeah, I have seven things that would make me question my, could, I, could we get a chalkboard? I'd like to just write them out, you know, coming home late for dinner. I, I've never had anybody do that. They all say the same thing, never in a million years. And I say, well, let me just toss out a couple of examples. And I don't, like, make stuff up that I don't, this is all real-life stuff. And I'll start listing circumstances that I'm dealing with with married couples or that I've seen in my own marriage. And, and, and they say, well, now, what if that happened in your marriage? And they're like, well, no, I, I don't think so. Oh, we're wavering a little bit now. There might be something that could cause you to stop loving your spouse. Yes, God, that same question. It's a matter of life and death, friends. God, is there any way, if I put my faith in Christ, that you will stop loving me? Is there a moment, God, when you go, oh, I didn't realize, I forgot what, what he or she did in college. Sorry, they're out. 
God is completely trustworthy. The righteousness of God is revealed. Why? So that you and I would know that he has paid the price that justice demands and he freely extends mercy and you can trust that every day of your life without question. But that's not where it ends this morning. There's one other thing that verse 17 does. It, um, it causes our response to be reinforced. Remember in verse 16, it says, the God, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Paul's going to take that, everyone who believes, and he's going to expand it in verse 17. He's going to say, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is, is calling us there to understand that, that from faith for faith, I'm going to back up for just a second. From faith means that God's given it to us in a faithful manner. He, he is completely trustworthy in giving us this grace. And it's for, it's for your faith, okay? So what does that mean? It means that the righteous shall live by faith. And there's a twofold meaning there. The first one is this. Our right standing with God, our, our being made righteous, so to speak, is, happens when we accept his gift through faith in Christ Jesus. So how do we live in response to this? Our first, re- our first response is to become spiritually alive through faith, not through my works, not through my effort, not through volunteering for everything the church has for me to volunteer for, being a good enough person that when God looks at the scorecard, I, I come out with a, with, a, with a winning percentage. No. To understand that it is a, that is a reaction of faith, saying, God, I can't save myself. I'm trusting you to save me, not through my effort or good works. Remember they said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And said the, Jesus said, the work of God is to believe. That's the first way we define what it means that the righteous will live by faith. But there's a second way. And it means that as I continue through my life's journey, I will do so by faith. In other words, my trust in God begins to define me as a person. As the gospel transforms my life, as, as this new life comes into me and God is now leading me, I'm now under the lordship of Jesus. There's great practical application for every part of my life. If there weren't, then we'd be done. Paul would have said after verse 17, sincerely, Paul. <laughs> but there's a lot more to go. Why? Because Paul understands that whether it's, it's marriage or, or work or, or my friendships or my money, my, my sexual identity, my citizenship, how I deal with, with my enemies, the, the people that hate me. By the way, the, the way Christians deal with their enemies is not to burn their books. I'm going to go on public record as saying that. What's my attitude towards the poor? What do I do when I want to seek revenge against another person who's wronged me? How do we serve for others? Should I even care enough to serve for others? All of those questions begin with my new life in Christ. But my relationship, my faith relationship, helps me understand the answers to those questions and it transforms my heart so that I want to follow Christ in very practical ways every day of my life. To live by faith continually. In order to do that, we must decide. Am I going to take Paul's advice? My dad was batting 500. You know, he, he got one of them really right and, and I praise God for that and one of them, I, I'm glad I... And I'll be disrespectful to my dad, but I'm glad I didn't listen. I'm glad I stayed in ministry. And in the end, he was, he was very glad of that too. You know, Paul, do we maybe decide whether we want a little or, or do we take all of it? That's the decision we have to make. But the gospel is clear. The righteous will live by faith. Um, we're, we're getting ready to do this uh, closing for 440 North Kirkwood. And uh, I've, been, I've been looking at 
all kinds of different stuff that uh, I, I had a business minor in college. I should have had a major. I've, I've forgotten most of it. But I'm looking at, at all this deal and, and trying to work through it. And um, I put pencil to paper this week, and I started to think about church planting at Green Tree. One of our core values from day one has been to plant churches. And we've had a hand in planting about five different churches, either uh, in, you know, a couple of them in St. Louis and then, and then a couple others of them in different parts of the country. And I began to put down the cost of that. And, and, and I, and I kind of recall how much we've, we've spent. And by the time we're done with City Church, we'll be flirting with a million dollars in 11 years that we have spent on church planting. And we're trying to, you know, scratch this money together for the down payment of, uh, for, the, for the 440 North Kirkwood. And I'm thinking, you know what? Man, that money would have gone a long way to you know, take care of this deal. I, you know, I, I assume God's going to raise up the money through our congregation, but, but we haven't, you know, we're, we're just starting on that journey. So you know, I'm kind of edgy about it. I'm thinking, you know, should, should we really have been committed to church planting? But then I remembered a conversation I had with Mike Workheiser about a week ago. And Mike's one of our pastors down at City Church. And uh, he was telling me about a guy that he's having these conversations with. And the guy's a real skeptic, and he really just has, has, in a kind of an angry way, not wanted to have anything to do with Christianity. But for whatever reason, Mike has found great favor in this guy's eyes. And he loves hanging out with Mike. The only Christian he wants to be around is Mike Workheiser. And he plies him with questions about what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, how do you put a price tag on that? How do you decide what a person's soul is worth? And it reminded me as I'm going through this, you know what? I... I could die being the pastor and we're still worshiping in here if that's what it, what it takes for us to be able to continue to plant churches. If God doesn't give us the money for the other deal, so be it. We're going to plant churches because you can't put a price tag on that guy's soul. That's the first half of the illustration, which actually kind of makes me look like I'm pretty far on the, down the road of sanctification, right? Well, here's the other half of that, of the, of the illustration. I'm talking to a buddy of mine about six months ago, a really good friend. And out of the blue, he says to me, he, he had watched me and, and run a couple meetings where I was recruiting people to, to come and volunteer to do some things at Green Tree. And uh, he kind of caught on to, to kind of how I operate. And uh, he said, I don't think I'd want to know you if you weren't a Christian. I said, well, what, is, what does that mean? He said, you could have, I watched how you did that. And, and under the umbrella of the grace of God, it really was kind of a beautiful thing. But if you didn't know Jesus, you, you'd be a scary guy to be around. Friends, when Paul says it's the gospel, and when he defines the gospel as the perfect justice and and mercy of God coming together, and he says you can take it to the bank, and you never lose it, because the character of God is a character of salvation. I believe that's something you can trust. But you have to decide. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the, the words of my friend that remind me that it is only by God's grace that Tom Ricks's life, his heart, his mind, his will is, is changing. It's only by living through faith and by faith that your work is accomplished in my life. And Lord, what's true for me is, is true for every one of us here. There isn't a person in this room, whether we understand it, believe it, accept it, or don't, that isn't outside the need of a Savior. And for those of us who, who are, are believers, for those of us who, who have put our faith in and want to live by faith, Lord, we need to be refined so much by what you teach us in your word about, about changing our hearts and our minds because we can still tend to selfishness, to arrogance, 
to looking out for ourselves and not caring about others.